Welcome to the third season of Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I'm really happy that you've joined us. Chris and I have been working hard on a whole new batch of stories that I think will touch each of you in some meaningful way. We're kicking off this season with an episode that highlights some of my deepest interests. I am totally fascinated with the dialectic between, as Jonathan Haidt described it in his must-read book, The Righteous Mind. This dialectic between humans as tribal primates versus humans as honeybees. This innate pull we all have toward allegiance to the small family clan and, at the same time, the often irresistible lure of losing ourselves into the greater buzzing hive of a purpose much larger than ourselves. This story also explores how trauma either heals or festers in the complex scaffolding of a person's past and their future. This story highlights the power of running and friendship and psilocybin and self-compassion to heal the wounds of sexual trauma. Jamie, our guest today, reached out to me a few months ago saying that, well, she might have a story for the podcast. And holy Batman, does she have a story. So thanks again, Jamie, for reaching out to me. And a question for each of you to ponder as you listen to Jamie's story. How and when in your life did you become a honeybee? When have you lost yourself in the greater group? What have you been willing to sacrifice to feel the ecstatic connection and purpose of the hive? I grew up in the gym, actually. So I was a gymnast, and all of my memories until I was 13, for the most part, revolve around gymnastics until we were driving in the car. I was like 12 and looked at my parents and kind of just felt like, huh, I wonder what else there is, you know, what do you guys know about this God thing? And so just started asking questions and my family, aunts and uncles went to church. And so I knew that, but again, I was in the gym truly all the time. And so we were going to meets on the weekends, not to church. That was my church. And so I just became curious. I watched my dad. He was a very passionate person and his passion like I, I wanted that. And I didn't know if it meant something like, do you go to church? Do you believe? And so just becoming really curious about that. And so we went to my aunt and uncle's church. It was a four square church in a tiny little town called Hanford. And I can remember walking in and it just felt curious, you know, there was like a palpable energy almost. And they would do this altar call, right? Every time they would do this altar call. And when I was little, I would kind of look around like, is anyone going to raise their hand? You know, because close your eyes, raise your hand if you, whatever. And is anyone going to do that? And so one day I just felt inside, like I would watch my dad and he would be um, worshiping, which I realize is kind of a word that needs describing and like a definition to, you know, you really are singing from the inside, singing from your soul to this God that you're connecting with. And like just passion and um, emotion would spill over him. My dad cried all the time, but it wasn't crying from like, you know, being sad or something. It was crying from emotion and just happy. And, you know, he'd look at you if he hasn't seen you in a while and he would <laughs> cry and start hugging you and his belly would jiggle. And it was fantastic. It's my, my most favorite memories about my dad. And so as, you know, watching him sing it as well and just tears fall, uh, falling from his face. And so that one day I, you know, as they were giving the altar call, um, I literally raised my pinky. <laughs> my pinky went up and I thought, no one's going to see my pinky. And after the service, one of the ushers, who are the you know people that would come down, one of the ushers came up to me and was like, did I see you raise your pinky? <laughs> and I was like, dang, I didn't think anyone would notice. But sure enough, there's my pinky. And so then they just, they prayed with me. And, um, you know, as I kind of I would go into church thinking like, I feel like I need to be saved. I feel like I need to be saved from myself. And I wasn't sure what that was about. I, what, it, but there was this deep sense of feeling like I needed to be saved from myself. Mm. After I was saved and, you know, said the prayer and 
my whole body shook. I'm, you know, pretty emotional person as well. And my parents, you know, hugged me and it was, you know, a happy day. And, you know, you eat a donut because there's always donuts after church. (laughs) So we had a donut. And that was really how I found faith. And, you know, knowing that, like, I wanted to keep going back. The people felt great. It was also like a family reunion every Sunday because my aunt and uncle were there and it was a small little church. So it felt comfortable. There's a sense of being seen and I, and that felt really nice too. Yeah, absolutely. That was Mm. good. Yeah. I can see what, what drew you to that. You know, there's something about something deep in us that really needs and wants community, wants to be seen community. You're Mm -hmm. right. Like it was a hundred percent about community and, but still that knowing that I, that I felt like I needed to be saved from myself. Going through high school was um, a little rough, if you will, in some parts. There was part of me where I felt like I'm just really into guys. I really, I, I felt very drawn to wanting to be in a, into a relationship. I felt very sort of physically motivated, if you will. But there was always a polarity to that experience inside me, but it was so deep that I didn't have awareness about it. And so, you know, I just kind of went with what I what I knew, you know, I, I loved being in relationships, I, I enjoyed the closeness that I felt, but also that, you know, the curiosity of how... <laughs> how much is okay, right, Mm -hmm. within a relationship in high school? And, you know, am I supposed to? Because the church would tell you one thing. And so, you know, sometimes like as a teenage Christian, you're like, but can I get that close to the line without (laughs) stepping over the line? Can I tip my toe on it? Mm -hmm. And am I okay? And so I was playing with that concept, but then I also, it was deeper for me. But I honestly didn't know why. I had no idea why until much later in my life. Yeah, so I went to college and played, I was lucky enough to play volleyball in college. And um, I got recruited from a school that I didn't really know about, but they were like, hey, our school's in Santa Cruz, and we'll pay you to come. And I said, that sounds great. (laughs) So let's do the thing. So I went to this Christian college, uh, happened to be an Assemblies of God school. And we had to sign a contract saying that we would not dance which I'll just own up to that. I signed and I did not follow that. (laughs) (laughs) You're a rogue dancer. Yes. (laughs) And not even very rogue. We would stand up in front of our windows in our dorm room and do the thing. So we just, it just felt odd. Why do we need to say that we wouldn't dance? What's, you know, what is scripture telling us about it not being okay to dance? And if it does say that, I don't, I, I don't believe it, you know? At that school, I was very involved in volleyball, basketball, because I was the athletic trainer for the men's basketball team. And through the men's basketball team, I became friends with all of them, of course. And it was my, it was my second year at school that one of the guys on the basketball team, we started dating. Um, but not dancing. Oh, I mean, <laughs> no, there was always dancing in the cars on okay. the way to the um, tournaments and stuff. Yes, we all decided that that was a silly signature, but we all had to sign. Um, <laughs> so the school no longer exists, so I feel okay about it. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that's a winning strategy to nick to recruit 18-year-olds to your school, no dancing. Right, yeah, no, dr- no dancing. And of course, no drinking, which... Honestly, like volleyball was my job, so I didn't have a hard time with that one. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't an issue for me. So yeah, I didn't have an issue. But 
So I started dating this, you know, guy that played on the team and um and it was a it was a unique situation for me. It was a different relationship than I had been in before. He felt like he you know there was kind of a bad boy mentality to him, you know, and something drew me to that. Um so I think we dated for just a couple of months. And there was, you know, one one day where we were at the house and he lived with several um, other, most of the guys played basketball on the team. And we were, you know, up in the room and again, like, where's the line? You know, mm-hmm. what's the line that I, that I exist on? What's the line that I'm comfortable with? And he very quickly went past that line, even with my no, and even with, I want you to stop, and even with um, the thing that happened to me when he continued is I froze. And, you know, I'm, I'm currently at this time, I'm 19, and I'm a college volleyball player, and you know, I'm strong. You know, I was an outside hitter. I was strong. And I just froze limp. I couldn't push him off. I couldn't do anything. And I just allowed what happened to happen. Mm-hmm. And immediately when that happened, you know, just this blanket of shame fell over me. And it, it was so palpable. But I also had so much guilt. Like, I think I did it. I think I'm responsible. And so kind of going back, this is where we circle back, start to circle back to I feel like I need saved from myself. Do you think you felt responsible in that you didn't physically stop it? Yes. Yeah, because there you were a strong, athletic woman and you froze, but you blamed yourself for not physically stopping him. Absolutely. Why couldn't I push him off? Um, You know, he was a very tall guy, um, (laughs) 6'9". But, you know, not a big 6'9". He, he was a, a little bit thin, and I probably could have, you know? <laughs> I was strong. Except that your body went to a place, freeze, where we often go when we're just trapped in what feels like a hopeless, helpless situation. Right. And just this question mark of, like, what is happening and why? You know, uh, date rape wasn't really something that was talked about a lot. You know, we, we didn't, I was so concerned about the line and trying to manage that. And again, still feeling like kind of drawn to it that when he went over the line and very much crossed it, I definitely had no's out, out loud. They weren't just inside. I still thought it must be my fault. Like I must have done something mm-hmm. that made him think, um, I was too promiscuous. I was too, you know, I, I, I must have not said no loud enough or enough times mm-hmm. or something. And so then it was just a complete freeze of my body. Um, in gymnastics, there was a quest for perfection, right? Mm-hmm. If you didn't do the back handspring right on the beam, you had to do it 10 times in a row right without falling off. And if you fell off, you had to start over at one. And so that was, you know, ingrained in me early, right, mm-hmm. to keep striving for perfection. So the fact that I didn't, I must have not done that perfectly in order to make him stop. her church, I forgave him Mm. because that's what you do. And if he is willing to come to you and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, those were the words, I didn't mean to. Mm. And so you forgive and you say, okay. And well, I, I should say I, But this was encouraged, so that's why I guess I use the word you. But I will own that and say I forgave him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a couple days went by with me just sort of being paralyzed and not really moving much. And 
But again, I didn't call it rape in my mind. I didn't call it date rape because I thought I was responsible. Like I had not said enough. Mm. So then, you know, we kind of went back to dating a little and um, it felt different for sure. It felt different until it didn't, until the, the next time. And the next time was more forceful. And it was 100% in my mind, I knew that I was being raped. And there was a mirror, and I got to watch the whole thing. And the curious part for me was all, again, and it still is, it still is to some degree, even though I've done so much work, um, I froze again, just 100% paralysis. And it it was not, I mean, there was a lot happening there. And I, again, I froze, but I was vocal. And what was surprising is no one heard me. And I was really vocal this time. There was music playing in the house, though. The entire house was home. And so there was that sense of like, does nobody hear me? Is no one going to come and save me? And so... um that particular time afterwards, you know, I gathered my stuff and left and I left a trail in the, in the room. And so as I left, I told one of the roommates who was a good friend of mine, I I won't name names, but I said, I was just raped. And if you don't believe me, go look at the blood on the floor. Mm. And it was you know, kind of hit and I just saw a sort of deer in headlights look for in his eyes and, and I left. And that was when I went to my roommate because I hadn't told anybody about the first experience. And I went to my roommate and told her I was just raped. And so then it's like, you know, what do you do? <laughs> what, do you, mm. what do you do with that? You know, you're at this Christian college kind of a star basketball player, you know, you can connect the lines. We've seen those stories. Mm-hmm. Do you say something? Do you not? And, um, and I didn't, didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Just kept going and uh, kept doing the thing. And there was one confrontation. I guess it would have been maybe three or four months after that happened that I found out he was actually dating someone the entire time he was with me. And she had come to visit the college to see him play basketball. And I ran into them on my way to the gym as a, um, the athletic trainer. And I basically let her have it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I let her know what he did to me. And that was the last I ever heard from him or talked to him or saw his face because I made sure that I did not pass him ever. Mm-hmm. And I would not treat him if he needed to be treated. So I go home at spring break and um, I tell my mom. I had gotten a little bit of clarity around that this happened and I was able to name that I was raped and say the word. And I love my mom dearly, but I will say what I felt. She did not believe me. She believed that I probably had something to do with it, that I probably, you know, made, made it happen or encouraged him or didn't do enough to make sure that it, that I was not, did not have sex with him. And I said, it wasn't sex. It, I was raped. There was blood on the floor. And as I was talking and clearly getting angry because I was not being seen by my mom, the thing that I needed for from her was actually not to validate that I was being that I was raped, but it was this next feeling of the thing that was hard for me is it feels like there was deja vu 
as he was raping me, deja vu came up in my body. This doesn't feel like the first time. And so I looked at my mom and I said, did something happen to me when I was younger? And that neighbor, the dad, did he do something to me when I was, I feel like I was four. That's the memory that, that came up to me. And all of a sudden, this whole window of child molestation opened up for me. And I had no idea. You know, our minds are so beautiful and so incredible and so protective. Mm-hmm. And it had just protected and locked that memory away. But my body didn't, yeah. right? Wow. How did your mom respond to that? As soon as I asked and I said something I think happened, she lost it and just started crying. You know, the whole body cry. Um, My dad was the one who was willing to go there with me with emotion, but not with this. It was hard for him, clearly. It would be for any dad. My mom just didn't want to talk about it because she didn't want me to have experienced it in the first place. But what I what I learned was after that happened when I was four, and she said, you know, you didn't really tell us a whole lot, but we started noticing signs that something had happened to you. And no longer were you, you know, we lived on a cul-de-sac and we would always be playing outside. Inside was never a thing, outside always. We would always be playing outside, and then after it happened, I would hide in the garage. And I wanted to be outside, but I was afraid to go out there. That happened for a couple of weeks. And then even when we were leaving, you know, we would leave and get in the car and drive away, I would hide on the floorboard of the back seat until we were well down the street, and I knew that I was safe. Mm -hmm. And then I would come out. And so that was when my parents started asking some questions. She says that I didn't say exactly what happened. What I know now from doing a lot of work, (laughs) enter EMDR, enter a lot of different therapies, um, is that there, you know, those little, I did get the picture of the little like, um, hideaways underneath the stairs Mm -hmm. that have the little door that you can kind of store things randomly. That was the where. And so I could see that I could see that picture of me being in there, me being led into that space by this man. And the other picture that I get is someone looking in and not doing anything. Mm. And so I have eyes looking in on that little room. Again, kind of, you know, so I think the comparison of when I was raped in college and knowing people were home and no one helping me, it that came back to, you know, full circle and seeing eyes looking in and no mm-hmm. one no one came to save me. No mm-hmm. one helped me. Did your mom believe you then about the rape in college once you brought up what happened to you as a little girl and then or did she still hold on to this horrible thought that it was somehow your fault in part. So there's still, even to this day, a little question mark in her mind. And I have to say, like, I think there's some protection there. She doesn't want to believe any of it. Mm-hmm. She, she isn't trying to not see me or trying to not, you know, love me in those moments. She just doesn't want to believe it. It's too hard. And, and I really think that's the thing. It's notable to say that my mom was also in a really serious car accident when I was 18, and she had um, some frontal lobe injury, and so she worked her ass off to heal and recover from that. She had to relearn the word door. I mean, she had to relearn how to walk, all the things. So, I, and this, this happened after that. And so I don't know, had, you know, pre-car accident mom, how she would have responded. That's always been a curiosity of mine that I won't get to know. Mm. But I I know that, I know her love for me is deep and I can imagine I'm a mom now. I can imagine she just really doesn't want to believe them. The lifetime impact of a specific trauma is hugely variable and often much less related to the trauma itself, but rather what happened prior to and after the trauma. 
Was there love and attachment and safety during the person's childhood? Was there a pre-existing anxiety or mood disorder? Were there prior traumas? And after the trauma, who was informed and what was their reaction? Was the person heard and believed? Was action taken to try to help? And was safety reestablished? And perhaps most importantly, was there repeated re-traumatization? While Jamie came from a stable and loving home, she was sexually assaulted as a young girl, and no one helped her. Thus, there was no chance to validate her experience and reestablish safety. Later in college, she was raped, but when she tried to tell others, she wasn't believed nothing was done. She was gaslighted, told it was her fault. Even when she found the man who would become her husband, he didn't seem to understand what she had been through. He wanted her to move past it, to be strong, let it go. And then, disastrously, her husband drew her into a Christian cult in which one of the teachings was that a woman's body was not her own. It belonged to her husband. And this led to years of further re-traumatization and her eventual breakdown. He was nice. He was nice, and he didn't feel like he was exploiting me, my body, or taking from me. There, there wasn't a lot of support, I guess, in, you know, if I was struggling with something or whatever. There was a good amount of conversation on trying to let it go. Don't you need to move past mm. that? And that's not just him. That was then, you know, cut to we're married, we're now in a, in a new church together very much. We just, you just, you need to let that go. What was the thing? Mm. <laughs> you know, I was kind of still stayed present in church throughout college, not as much necessarily. And, and when I met him, there was always the description of this is different. You know, let me tell you about this. And, um, I'll name it, Sovereign Grace Ministries was the church that we were a part of. And immediately I had this intuition of, are you sure you weren't part of a cult? Because it really sounds like, like you, it's the same God, right? We're talking, about, we're talking about God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, that whole thing, right? Like Holy Bible, you know, what, like is a different version? Do you guys read King James? <laughs> like you can't read. I, I just was so confused. Why is it so different? And he laughed, you know, like, no, it's not a cult. <laughs> well, <laughs> that turns out it might have been. Um, yes, in my mind, I would call it, yes, it was a cult. So Sovereign Grace asked of you to be very role-oriented. And so I'm, an, I'm, I'm a Leo. I'm an independent woman. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have lots of thoughts, I have lots of ideas, I have lots of opinions. Um, I will let you have yours for sure. I love I love the um, constant back and forth of like deep-seated, you know, this is what I hold really true to myself. I love those kind of conversations, but I'm not afraid to have, you know, the tough conversation. And so I just kind of went after this type of church. I kept having the conversation. Why do they need me to be in a role of a wife and a, eventually a mother? And, you know, you had like the order of your life laid out for you, you know, first your daughter of God, then your wife, then your mother, if your mother. Mm-hmm. And it was just so... Like you had, to, you had to put it on like like a layer of clothing, really, and wear it. And if you didn't, you know, they would call you out on it. And they would, you know, in love, in grace, they would kind of put you back in line, really. And like, like a border collie, like, nope, bring you back in, right? <laughs> because I don't half-ass anything, <laughs> right? I am... I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it all the way. I'll ask questions while I'm doing it, and I'll wonder <laughs> what the heck... But I really wanted, like, okay, I'm going to do the thing. But there was this deep voice, kind of that deep voice that reminded me of being molested when I was little, 
there was this deep voice of a feeling of like, this is not you. This is not fully who you are. And so I did things with a question mark always. And I always wanted to be a wife. I always wanted to be a mom. I became a mom really young. I was 24. And I I wanted that. You know, that was, those were always really important. But I always wanted to work as well. My work, um, I was always in exercise science. And that was really important to me. And it was basically told to me that you can't work. You know, why do you want to work? Why do you want to go get your master's? Back then I was going to go get my master's in exercise physiology. And why do you want to do that if you just want to be a mom? And I had this like question mark in my mind. Wait, can't you do both? Because I feel like I could really do both. <laughs> you had to be a, a, a wife and serve your family and serve your husband and be submissive to the things that he needed. And so his job took precedent because he was a provider. I wanted I wanted to say yes. I wanted that to be the thing that gave me all the joy. And that was another thing like you need to you need to get your fulfillment here. You need to be grateful about this place in your life. And I wanted that. Mm-hmm. And so I strived really hard for it. And I remember having a conversation with someone and they, a, a friend of mine at that time, and, you know, they had a, they had a PhD. They were incredibly smart. I mean, this woman was brilliant. And she told me, I've realized that I, I'm just changing my tools and I'm giving up. She was a scientist. I'm giving up, you know, a telescope or a um, microscope for a mop and a broom and a vacuum and these are now my tools of my job, and I'm going to do them well. And wow. I can see your face, and that was my face too. always so fascinated by the power of community to kind of sublimate, subjugate the individual. And even this whole idea that um, so often in structures, and particularly I think some of the legalistic church structures, that the what gets set up is that women are really below men. I mean, women are like, it's like a different cast. Like there's the God cast, the man cast, and the woman cast. And and yeah, it sounds like in Sovereign Grace, you were kind of lower caste. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Women could not speak in front of men. Women could not teach men. And oof. I had a hard time. <laughs> I had a hard time with that. I mean, I really questioned so much. There, <laughs> but you stuck with it, which again I think is really maybe one of the most interesting things because you know I only know you now. Yeah, and it's just it's fascinating. It's it's kind of mind-boggling to picture you in that role. Because I would go to bat sometimes with the pastors, and I would go to bat with the pastor's wife. And, you know, we had <laughs> a great story is we had um, this small group, this women's group that I became a part of. You know, you had to do like church and then midday church and then the like single gendered church <laughs> and all the things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like your week was taken up with all the meetings. And this um, ladies group that I was a part of, we started reading this book called The Excellent Wife. Yeah. So this book, you know, I read books and I highlight things that I love. And this book, I highlighted everything I hated. (laughs) And for example, it said, like, if you have the ability to get that box from way up high on the shelf, but your husband is there, you should let him do it so that he can do it for you, because that's his job. And I thought, fuck that. (laughs) Except, of course, in my mind, it was no way. At that point, you know, fuck was not a word that I Mm -hmm. could say, but now it is. (laughs) (laughs) So I just would come to ladies group like, really, guys? (laughs) This? This is the thing? 
And there was even a moment with, you know, a couple years later with one of the women that was in that group with me who came up to me and she was like, you know, I remember when you first showed up and you were highlighting all the things that you hated about this book by Martha Peace. And I was like, yeah, she said, you've changed so much since that moment. And part of me died inside. Mm. Because part of me was like, no. And then the other part of me was like, oh, good. I'm finally doing the thing. And it's, people are noticing. I'm drinking that Kool-Aid. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I still noted the death, that internal, deep, mm-hmm. deep death. Mm-hmm. So you came into Sovereign Grace with this sexual assault history. And it's living in your body. And it was reactivated your childhood abuse is really brought to the surface by the assault assaults in, in college. And now you're in kind of this uh, legalistic caste system where you are lower caste, where, as you told me before we recorded, that your body didn't really even belong to you. Mm-hmm. Like that was the teaching. Mm-hmm. The story that kept repeating in the church like really nailed that story in too by saying, you're down here. And we're up here. Men are up here. So then it just became like this automatic thing. I guess this is just what I do is what I learned. I guess this is just what I do. And again, cut back to, I felt like I needed saving from myself. And that story of, okay, here, here's what we do. And, you know, within my marriage, the role of, of what I needed to be in that marriage, even in, in, in our intimacy as well, s- started to become very servant-oriented, mm-hmm. submissive. This is just what you do. Yeah. I mean, how can there be consent? I mean, how can there be mutual sexual interaction given your history and then given the context of the church you're in? I mean, I don't, it seems like you you could just potentially be getting re-traumatized. Yeah. The whole time. You're right. You're you're exactly right. Because I would, I remember one time, you know, little graphic, but positionally saying, I, I can't, I don't want to do that. That's how I was raped. Mm-hmm. And eventually the first couple of times I was like, okay, I'll give you that one. Okay. I'll give you that one. And then it was, if you'll love me, you, you'll do it. Mm-hmm. And, and even like, you know, getting out of the shower and feeling looked at and sort of that <laughs> the words of i should be able to look at you cuz you're you're mine and it was like i was a possession yeah and 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 i was so i wasn't my own and that became very very clear i never did a deep dive into who am I? Because you aren't you aren't actually encouraged to. You're encouraged to look outside of yourself. They even would say there is nothing good in you, not one thing apart from Christ. Like, really? <laughs> that just felt so I, I kept trying to wrap my mind around that and wrap my heart around that. And I felt like but I feel like I have good in me. I love doing things mm-hmm. for people. I love serving people. That feels good. Why is there nothing good in me? You know, and we had like this modesty checklist that we had to do. And you had to subjugate yourself to your husband or your father if you didn't have a husband. And if you were a single woman who lived alone, good luck. Who, who knows what you're going to do? But you had to check your outfit. And it was literally a checklist. You had to start with your heart. And decide why you were wearing what you were wearing. Was it for yourself? Was it to honor God? Or was it to strut your stuff in front of guys and tempt them? Was your bra strap showing? Was it see-through? If you hit the sun in the wrong way, could you see your legs, the silhouette? I mean, it seems like if you were going to design a system to 
either cause, trigger, or worsen PTSD. It would be this. So you came into this whole church ecosystem very traumatized with some really amazing resilience factors, but you're being told, yeah, there's nothing good in you. Your body doesn't belong to you. You're being re-traumatized. Excuse me, in your marriage, you don't necessarily feel even safe with your romantic partner. You are told by the other women in the group, you have to constantly know that if you're tempting men or drawing them, it's you, it's your fault. It's you, it's you, it's you, you're broken. I mean, did this lead to, I mean, I'm just imagining like a slow motion breakdown or depression or despair or panic or hopelessness. I mean, it it feels like this couldn't possibly be heading anyplace good. I started running. (laughs) Mm. I did. I found running. And I knew movement meant, meant a lot to me. But in college, I didn't really like to run. Like, I, I no, that is too much work. But I realized, like, ugh, I think I'm going to have to do this a lot as a college volleyball player, so I better, like, change the relationship I had. So I just started running. And I, I realized that that was, like, my saving grace, that I could hit the pavement and I could work out all the things in my mind. Now, granted... If I had to, wanted to do anything with my running, like if I wanted to run races or if I wanted to whatever, because, you know, I just, I'd go big. And so I started running and I was like, I think I'm going to run a marathon. And that was the first race I ever did was a marathon. Um, but, you know, I had to wake up at and be on the road by 5, 530 so that I could get back so that no one would be awake yet so that I could make breakfast because, you know, I I couldn't ask him, you know, really to watch the kids for too long. And so I just had so much to work out. And there were definitely moments when I was running that I thought, maybe I just won't come back. (laughs) Maybe I'll just Forrest Gump this shit and keep on going, (laughs) you know? And I found an amazing friend down the road who, thank God she was 10 years older than me because she was fast as fuck. And like, I just thought, God, if I could, I'm glad you're 10 years older because now maybe I can keep up with you. And uh, we ran and it was just so nice to connect Mm. over that. But the majority of miles, because she also had three young kids, were spent alone and in my mind. Mm. Was she in the church? She was not. She was not. So two things are pulling you out of this community, the running, you're actually literally running away from your home in the early morning hours. And then you're making a close woman friend right outside of the church. And that was not encouraged. Let's just say she saw me for the under skin that I couldn't wear outside. And she, <laughs> what an incredible friend she is and still in my life. I mean, yeah, she, it was to be seen for like past the persona that I was wearing and to know like she could see that that was not me. And I, like, I was hard to, I was hard sometimes. It was hard to be my friend sometimes. You know, we ended up we ended up moving from that place and moving to a small town in Illinois. And my then husband um, left about a year before we moved and he moved early. And then I became a single mom and was working my first job because I wanted to get a job. And I just, I finally would pursue, I mean, I would pursue and pursue and pursue. It wasn't really my first job. I taught a stroller fitness class for lots of years and that was like a dream. It was amazing. But as a single mom, my friends and this particular friend really, really supported me in so many ways. And I remember a very incredible moment when she came to my house and found me in the fetal position on the floor in my bedroom. And I said, I can't do this. And this was before we moved to Illinois. And when we moved to Illinois, the wheels came off the bus, we'll just say. Mm-hmm. And that was when like, I knew I couldn't, this marriage was not going to last because I was becoming 
something different. The inside of who I really was was starting to come to the outside and seep through and it couldn't be squelched any longer. So when she found me there, it was kind of a turning point moment for me. And Illinois then became the the time when I, we went to counseling lots and lots. We um, went to a, a Christian marriage counseling that, you know, was kind of like, if this doesn't work, nothing will. That was how they sold this um, retreat, you know, if this doesn't fix your marriage. Um, 40 hours of counseling with four other couples that you didn't know and um, let's tell all the things. And this Christian counselor basically said, you have to get a divorce. Mm. And that that's not what they're supposed to say. <laughs> let's just say. Yeah. I think it's so interesting, Jamie, that two of the things that, it seems like like pulled you back into the light are two things so dear to me. So running is my greatest love. Right. And friendships are just, I have some amazing, beautiful, just relationships that I'm singing praises for. And uh, yeah, because when I first met you, we started talking about this story. I said, how did you pull out of this cult really? And you said running. And then you said, and I met someone, I met a friend. And, you know, I'm always thinking that, you know, we change through relationships. That's how we really change. But in the meantime, like, how do we cope? I think one way you and I have coped is running. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I hadn't discovered running at age 11, I don't know what would have happened to me. Yeah. it. Yeah, there's so many, many miles that I have put in. and um, And some of those miles almost became my last truly you know i i did in illinois i thought hey this you know this thing could go away mm-hmm. quick on this country road you know where it was a small town country roads like i could run for 4 hours and run into 3 cars mm-hmm. like that's cool and that you know truck that just passed like i'm two steps away from it this thing that i'm doing that i love being the thing that takes me out. And if I didn't have my amazing kids, I 100% believe that I probably would have done that. And so running, while it saved me, it almost also mm-hmm. cost me. I still do it. It's still I still have a love relationship with it. And it's helped me heal more than anything. And the, the amount of conversations. So I had one friend, that one friend was in San Diego or um, North County. And the other friend that I met was in Illinois. And we truly worked out our divorce together in a lot of ways. And there were so many conversations and time on the pavement. And there's something, you know, meditative about it too, you know, really healing of just the repetitive nature of it. You can get lost in the steps, lost in your breath, lost in the scenery. It's just, it's uh, its amazing. Also an addiction a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah. So what does this uh, basically healing recovery period looked like from leaving your marriage, leaving this church, and now having to find who you are and who's Jamie and how are you going to make your way in the world? And what does that look like for you? It has looked like a lot of things. Since 2015 was really you know, 2012 to 2015 was when we were in Illinois and kind of, oof, I mean, if I met you in Illinois, I feel like I should apologize. Um, I was a mess for a lot of it, you know, and moving out here now to Fort Collins, I've still been a mess for a lot of it, but I have found people and modalities and freedom to explore who I really am and how I want to show up in this world. And it took, um, it really took 
like first, you know, some counseling from a non-Christian therapist (laughs) who, who, um, helped me find Pema Chodron, who's one of my amazing mentors that I just, I'll read anything that she says. I'll listen to anything. Her words just have been (laughs) manna to my soul. And then I really had to start looking at life from a whole different lens. What kind of freedoms am I willing to give myself? And how am I willing to change my story? And I felt like I wanted to change it not only for myself, but also for my kids. And I wanted to give them the ability to do life as they see fit. Do you want to go to church? Does that feel good to you? Or do you not? And we've all chosen not. And, but I would support the it. I would support if they wanted to, but it just felt so important for me to find my authentic self so that then, and this was like when my oldest was just starting to, you know, teenage. (laughs) So kind of an important part for me, but we kind of have learned and journeyed together truly. I mean, in your teenage years, like, whew, especially now, like there's so much learning and growing that they're doing. And I wanted to give them the picture that I'm growing too, and I'm changing too. And so I, I just continued to work out my trauma story because I felt like it was important for me to find deeper knowing what is there. And I started um, sort of lifting the veil on my rigidity of what was right and what was wrong. You know, it was wrong to do drugs. It was wrong to get drunk. It was wrong to do these things. And there's some truth to some parts of those statements still. My family has a good amount of addiction in their um, substance use and abuse and um, disorder and, you know, alcohol use disorder, all kinds of things in their past. And so I always knew, like, I should treat that very carefully. You know, I'm an all-in kind of person. So I feel like if I go in, I might be all in. I started learning about cannabis first and some healing properties of cannabis. And then I started learning about psilocybin and this amazing plant medicine has, I want to, I want to give homage to my amazing counselor as well, who has done incredible work for me, but I'm so physically and somatically oriented that I needed something to go with me deeper. So I, like anything else, researched the shit out of it to make sure that I felt good about it. And, and you know, we're talking like four and a half, five years out of all the things. You know, I was a conservative Christian up until <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> so um, there's been a lot of different clothes I've put on, you know, what, how do I get dressed in the morning? <laughs> I don't even know, right? <laughs> I don't know what to wear. I don't know yeah, what to put on. I think you need a different kind of checklist. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I do. It's true. Um so I found I found a way that I was wanting, and actually I should say that I started a grad school program, in fact. So since leaving the church and that role of needing to be a submissive wife, I, I've gotten my yoga certification, my personal training certification, which is always kind of there, but just the actual thing. I, I got a job. I worked. I am now putting myself through grad school. I've done a lot of things in six years that couldn't, that I couldn't do, that I wasn't allowed. And I'll use that word intentionally. I wasn't allowed to do. And so this just seemed like the next thing. (laughs) Let's let's take some mushrooms. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. I don't think all the, well, maybe a lot of listeners of this podcast would think that's the next thing. But <laughs> it's not I think obvious. in general, yeah, yoga, master's degree, mushrooms. But, they okay. go together. Right? All right, we'll go with it. And okay. my master's should be set. My master's is, is in addiction counseling too. Mm. So also there's that, you know, thinking like, hey, these are also wrong still. You know, there's a lot of abstinence-based mm-hmm. um, teaching still mm-hmm. in um, the world of addiction counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a good amount of harm reduction, which I love. Um, and I am, I have always... that's the thing that if we can circle back to that, I felt like I needed saving. I've always felt kind of on the outside a little bit, you know, just, I don't navigate the, the traditional waters and I never really have. And so why not mushrooms, right? These are not (laughs) not traditional waters to navigate. Um, Yeah. 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 It kind of reminds me, I had a good friend in college who's then, his eventual wife told me that she grew up with these hippie pot smoking parents in Palo Alto and she just couldn't figure out how to shock them. So she joined campus crusade for Christ. <laughs> she thought the only way you can rebel against pot smoking hippie parents. So anyway, so you wow. Jamie went from conservative <laughs> Christian to DIY psilocybin. Right. Okay. Did the inverse of that. So why psilocybin and then what did that experience experiences look like for you? Yeah, I started doing research and I just believe in it. I believe in the medicine that it is and the history that is there. The ancestry with psilocybin is um, so long and rich and there, you know, there's amazing people. I could throw down a bunch of names, but there's amazing people doing incredible research on it. And it just seemed now I'd never, I've never done anything. Right. So up until 2015, I had never, I'd never done anything. I'd barely gotten drunk. So I have no experience with psychedelics but I'm pretty sure it's the thing <laughs> for me. And, you know, there's a belief, there's a buy-in factor. I I knew that this was something that was going to help. I read um, The Body Keeps Score and knew that trauma lived in my body. And I needed it out. And so I felt like I could maybe get it out with this. And then turns out I found this podcast called Back from the Abyss <laughs> and heard a couple stories even. And so I was like, some people are doing the thing. Maybe that's, maybe that's what I need to do. And so I set out on a solo psilocybin journey. I will say not always recommended to be solo in, you know, a heroic dose of psilocybin, but... And why are those um, why are those two choices the yeah. uh, solo and the starting with the very large dose? Yeah, <laughs> go big or go home, Craig. Right? Because I guess if, like if you're going to do conservative Christianity, you're going all in, dude. I don't half-ass anything. Like I said, I'll circle <laughs> back to that. Okay, <laughs> let's just do it big. Yeah. So uh, yeah, solo was really important to me, and that was probably the piece of the puzzle that I was nervous about. But I had, I, I, you know, set and setting being one of the most important parts of your psilocybin journey. I this was intentional, you know. This wasn't like I'm going to go outside and I'm going to see if the moon breathes with me and see how the trees sway in my, you know, honor. Um, this was intentional. I was doing a deep dive, and so I knew I needed to go big. I needed the heroic dose to get it all out, if you will, is what I, is what I thought. And I didn't want, even if there was somebody that I could ask, and I had plenty of people to be in the other room, I didn't want the eyes. And honestly, when I was four, no one saved me. When I was 19, no one saved me. It was time for me to save myself. And I was going to welcome this medicine in help instead of another person and believing another person was going to come save me. Christianity didn't save me, you know? So um, I made sure that I hid my car keys from myself. (laughs) I locked all the doors. I barricaded myself in my bedroom 
you know, I had music playing, I had the, um, I had my screensaver set to all kinds of, you know, good, <laughs> bright, colored, psychedelic, you know, stuff. You're supposed to do that, right? Um, I had gummy bears by my bedside because for some reason I felt like that was important and <laughs> I needed snacks of gummy bears. I don't really eat them right. Well, no, that's not true. Sprouts gummy bears are amazing and I've fallen in love with them, unfortunately, but they were going to be the thing that like helped me in my psilocybin journey. <laughs> I have no idea why. And so, I, yeah, I went in and um, got in my bed and got under the covers when I started feeling kind of the effects and I will say I had two experiences prior where I did like just a little taster dose just to kind of see. So I knew a little bit about how I might feel, but I didn't know. I didn't know, <laughs> really. So the deep dive was, you know, I, 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 I took enough to make sure that I got there and I pretty much crawled under the covers and I didn't come out for about five hours. <laughs> I, like, I almost want to give the mushrooms names because they 100% felt like they were had human form. I mean, we had conversations. What I wish I would have done is like had a recorder going to see if those, the things that were in my mind actually came out and they were um, audible. But, you know, we talked to each other and they, my intention going in was, I want it out. I want all the trauma that lives in me to come out. And I had also this question mark of like, I feel like there's another one, another piece and this sort of cousin piece for me that felt stuck in me. Like, did that, did something happen? Cause I got just the same as I got when I was four, just these pictures my age, a picture, a wear, and a feeling. And I had that again around eight years old. So I kind of asked that of the mushrooms, like, would you do me a solid? <laughs> and would you, would you help me with this? And so, yeah, they dove in and they would kind of get in there and they'd look at me <laughs> with their mushroom eyes <laughs> and say, we have to go deep. We have to go in. And I would have to give them permission every time. It's okay. I want it out. And that was my mantra. It's okay. I want it out. And every time they would kind of dive in deep and they would expunge something from me. And I think it's important to note that something would come out of me. And the knowing that I had inside my body and inside my mind was they were expunging old semen from my body. Mm. And the viscous quality that was coming out of me. And it was coming out my mouth, my nose. It almost felt like it was coming out my ears. I don't think it did, but it just up, which I found was interesting that it, nothing went down, you know, so much of my trauma was down. And it was almost like they said, we're going to leave that, you know, you've had enough experience down there. We're going up. And they just mined for everything. And they took... They gave me the knowing of when I was eight, we're going to go deep, we're going to get it out. And I would, again, it's okay. I want it out. And my body would shake, like my, my shoulders would shake. And I would say, ew, every time, ew. Because it, it was, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. And the, the lovely thing that I've experienced about psilocybin and in this journey especially is the depth of healing that came, but also the moments of pause that happen in the journey. It was like they would go deep and then they would pause and let me rest. You know, like we're going to rest in between that contraction if you've had kids. You're just going to get a moment to breathe. And then we're going to ask for your permission to go again. And every time I got this moment to kind of give like an aerial view of what just happened, I was so grateful for those moments of rest, you know? Wow. You know, that's your description sounds so much like what people describe with ayahuasca, which I think is really interesting because apparently, excuse me, high dose psilocybin is basically DMT mm -hmm. and ayahuasca is, right. you know, time release DMT. Right. But, you know, where you talk about, the permission and the mushroom entities and going deeper and the pause. I mean, it sounds like many stories of kind of trauma 
exorcism I've heard with ayahuasca. Right. Yeah. I felt it come out of my body. You know, I didn't throw up like ayahuasca. Um, And there was a knowing of what they were expunging, which I was so grateful for. Mm -hmm. Because then it gave me like clarity that it's coming out. And truly, you know, when I came out after five hours and I had very smartly been informed to cover all of the window or the mirrors in my in my house which I did and I was so grateful for that but when I came out I mean this I felt like I was wearing new skin I felt like my body had kind of done a 180 and like the inside of my body was now on the outside which was like my authentic self who I really knew that deep the deep person who my friend in San Diego saw was now on the outside. Mm. And I don't think, I should say, I know I couldn't have gotten there without the mushrooms helping me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So what's been your experience of your body, your somatic experience ever since that session? It sounds like there was a lot of movement and purging and um, depth work. I mean, does your body feel different? Do you experience your body differently now? I do, yeah. And I'm, um, I did that just this January. And so, you know, it's been about five months. And <laughs> I mean, the beauty of these big trips and any trip really like there's so much memory to it you know can remember just like I did it yesterday my body continues to be the thing I'm a very somatic person and so I need to keep doing stuff uh, healing practices for my body yoga is so important to be to move to breathe to feel and experience Um, I've started doing craniosacral therapy I have some amazing therapists one here and one in Boulder who just are allowing me to like feel into my body in different ways and to honor the things that I'm feeling and to, to like reground myself and to say that this is good and that you have full autonomy, you know, I've never had that. And so this is like a whole brand new experience of like being in this new body. So yeah, I I continue to do more somatic work because it turns out that it might take a little while to undo 34 <laughs> years of, of, you know, trauma. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who might find meaning in it. If you want to reach out to Chris or me, you can email us through my website, craigheacockmd.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also make sure that you follow or subscribe to Back From the Abyss. That way you won't miss any of our episodes, which I believe will continue to come out about twice a month or so. Chris and I have made a renewed commitment to quality over quantity. We want these stories to be worth the wait.